Good morning and welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. My name is Mary Alice and I'm the pastor here at Calvary. If you're new to Calvary, we are really glad you're here. and want you to know that you are welcome in this place. You will need a worship folder and one of the hymnals in front of you to guide you in worship today. And also, we would be honored for the opportunity to follow up with you later this week by email or phone to get to know you better. And one way that can happen is if you would be willing to fill out the visitor card in your pew and place it in the offering plate later in the service. That's also a way you can ask for more information about different ministries here at Calvary or to let us know how we can be praying for you and with you in the coming week. Well, as we begin our worship service today, we have some brief business to attend to as a faith family to formally offer our affirmation for the ordination of Emmett Drumgoole this afternoon. And so I'm going to ask Joel Weaver and Eric Holliman to come up. All right, I will formally call us into business session and turn the floor over to Eric. The ordination council for uh, Calvary is made up of Carolyn Cole, Steve Sadler, Deirdre Fulton, Joel Weaver, Eric Holloman, myself, and uh, Mary Alice Birdwhistle. And so we uh, come to you today to move that we complete the ordination process of Emmett Drumgould before he leaves and goes to Second Baptist Church in Liberty, Missouri. I would have you to know that we are doing this after an extensive conversation and we make this motion with great hope, uh, with the unanimity of the spirit of the committee, the council, and with uh, great enjoyment in uh, the way we've been able to share life with Emmett and the uh, depth and the hope of the conversation that we've had with him. So we so move. All in favor of the ordination of Emmett Drumgoole, please indicate by an uplifted right hand. All opposed by same sign. The motion carries. Uh, Emmett's family will be, will be delighted to know they don't have to turn the car around. <laughs> and that ends our business session. Thank you all. I do hope you will be able to join us for Emmett's ordination service this afternoon at 3 p.m. for a time of blessing over him and his call to ministry. I'm grateful to Deirdre Fulton, who will be preaching today as we continue our worship series on the book of Ruth, making our way when God is nowhere in sight. Although there is perhaps not a more fitting title for today when we look across the headlines to see the words deadly day in America and it can feel as if God is nowhere in sight. We went to bed watching the horrors of the aftermath of the shooting that killed 20 people in El Paso yesterday. Later hearing about the shooter's manifesto posted online filled with racist language of hatred toward immigrants and Latinos. And then we woke up to news of yet another shooting overnight that killed nine people in Dayton, Ohio. We all know that thoughts and prayers are not enough. As people of faith, this is absolutely where we begin, but it can't be where we end. And so let us pray together this morning with our hearts and souls 
But let us also commit to praying with our hands and our feet in the days to come. In my prayer, whenever I offer the words, Lord, in your mercy, I invite you to respond by saying, hear our prayer. Let us pray. Oh God, our help in ages past, we need your help today. Our brothers and sisters in El Paso and Dayton need your help today. Send them strength for each moment. Comfort them in their shock and inexplicable grief. In their fear and trauma, help them to know that you are with them. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, when we are heartbroken, comfort us with your presence. When we are angry that senseless gun violence keeps happening all around us, we know that you meet us here. And when we feel helpless, God, call us forward to walk in the ways of love and justice. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Oh God, our help in ages past, help us to stand against racism and white nationalism and hate. Help us to stand up to senseless gun violence. Help us to stand for mental health and for those who are silently struggling in ways we may never know or understand. Help us to stand with our brothers and sisters in El Paso and Dayton who are beloved children of God. Help us to speak up and to say that enough is enough. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, we know that even when hate fills the headlines, your love is still greater. Even when fear-mongering pervades our world, your love is stronger. Even when unbearable grief weighs us down, your love lifts us up. May we be people who walk in the ways of your relentless love. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. O oh God, our help in ages past, you are the hope of the world. And so even when the headlines tempt us to believe otherwise, truly our hope is in you. Amen.
Father, we woke this morning to more news of the brokenness of our world. Our hearts are heavy. And so we are here together today, joining with our family of faith to turn our eyes to you and to be reminded that you are still at work in our broken world. And even more, we are reminded that you are still at work in our own brokenness. And so today, help us to lift our hands in praise instead of clasping them in fear. Help us to listen for your voice instead of ruminating over life's demands. And may we leave here bold enough to say with Ruth, I will do whatever you say. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who redeems us and calls us. Amen. the children to join me at the front.
Good morning, friends. So the past couple of weeks, we've been learning about two really important ladies. Does anybody know the names of them? Ruth and Naomi. So for today, our story, Naomi is going to ask Ruth to take a really big risk. Do you know what it means to take a risk? to do something that is dangerous. So Naomi wanted Ruth to be taken care of. And she asked Ruth to go to Boaz in the middle of the night. And that was a risk because back then, women really couldn't do things without their husband, and they didn't have a lot of power or authority. And so it was a big risk for Ruth to go in the middle of the night. But you know what she did? She told Naomi, whatever you say, I will do it. And she was fearless. She went to Boaz in the middle of the night. And instead of waiting for him to tell her what to do, she asked Boaz to protect her and to marry her. And, you know, Boaz could have said he could have embarrassed her. He could have hurt her. But instead, he gave her food to take back to Naomi and He said that he wanted to marry her the right way, and he wanted to talk to the other family members first. And he gave her a blessing from the Lord. And so because Ruth was fearless, God was there with her, protecting her and providing a way for her. And some of you learned about being fearless this week at camp. And so as we go back to our seats, I want you to think about ways that you can be fearless and trusting God that God is going to be with you and God is going to be protecting you along the way. Okay? All right. By faith we see the hands of God in the light of creation's grand design. In the lives of all those who prove His faithfulness, we walk by faith and not by sight. By faith our fathers roamed the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts of a holy city built on god's own hands a place where peace and justice reign we will stand as children of the promise we will fix our eyes on him our souls reward till the race is finished and the work is done we'll walk by faith and not by sight by faith the prophets saw the day when the long for messiah would appear with the power to break the chains of sin and death and rise triumphant from the grave 
by faith the church was called to go in the power of the spirit to the lost to deliver captives and to preach good news in every corner of the earth we will stand as children of the promise we will fix our eyes on him our souls reward till the race is finished and the work is done we'll walk by faith and not by sight By faith this mountain shall be moved And the power of the gospel shall prevail For we know in Christ all things are possible For all who call upon his name We will stand as children of the promise We will fix our eyes on him our soul's reward till the race is finished and the work is done we'll walk by faith and not by sight we will stand as children of the promise we will fix our eyes on him our soul's reward till the race is finished and the work is We'll walk by faith and not by sight. We'll walk by faith and not by sight. Hello. My name is Will Heston, and I'm one of the youth who went on the South Texas mission trip this year. This trip was especially important to me because it would be my last mission trip with the youth. We went down to South Texas in part to help out with a small local church, New Wine, with their VBS. While we were there during the first day, we helped set up for the VBS by decorating the entry room and the worship center. We made paper trees, bushes, flowers, and animals to populate the jungle theme, and we even threw paper vines across the beams near the ceiling. A few of us probably had a little bit too much fun tearing up the carpet on the stage stairs, too. We each had our part in decorating, and we all had fun doing it. Later that day, during our lunch break, Jorge Zapata, uh, the Director of Fellowship Southwest Immigration Relief Ministry, stepped by to, er, stopped in to check on us at New Wine. While we were talking with him, we learned of an opportunity to serve lunch at a humanitarian respite center run by Catholic Charities later that week. Ali quickly took up this opportunity. When the day finally came for us to go to the refugee shelter, most of us didn't know what to expect. Getting there, we were greeted by Victor, a, a local pastor and a friend of Jorge's. Following Victor, we entered the kitchen through the back alley, and from the kitchen, we entered the shelter's cafeteria. We split into groups, with one group preparing plates of foods, and 
the other group ready to serve meals. As the refugees were let in, they all took a seat at the table in, one of the caf in the cafeteria. They were everyday people, families with small children, brothers with younger sisters, moms with babies, a son with his aging mother, all taking a seat to be served a small bowl of chicken and rice and cucumber. Some of us were tasked with handing out shoelaces and hair ties as they came in, things that were taken from the refugees at detention centers at the border, along with belts and other items. Most of them looked physically exhausted from a long journey and many sleepless nights in the shelter. And yet, as we served them, we were met with many broad smiles and thank yous. Once the chicken ran out, we switched to tacos, and the refugees continued to come, and we continued to serve. As the inflow into the cafeteria subsided, and we started to wrap up, Victor led us in prayer. He informed us that they had expected to feed around 400 people that day. We had fed over 1,000. God was working through us that day as we served, and he was with the refugees as we served them. Now, most of us had only heard of the situation at the border um, and of the conditions the refugees had endured to enter the country. But when we served those refugees' lunch ourselves and saw the people firsthand, many of us, to many of us, it became clear that it was not just a news story in the daily cycle. It was real. And for many, this is the daily reality that they live through. One of the most striking things for me was that every person in South Texas, no matter their stance, refers to the refugees as refugees, not migrants or immigrants or otherwise. Everyone there is a refugee, a person seeking shelter, and everyone deserves the kindness and love of Jesus. So come, let us all serve in the name of our Lord. From the book of Ruth. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. 
I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do all for you that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me this, these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God.
Let us pray. Lord, we pray for the victims and the families in the tragic shooting in El Paso and Dayton. We pray for wisdom and discernment in this time of tragedy. Now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. O Lord, you are our rock, redeemer, and comforter. So many of you know that I teach in the Department of Religion at Baylor University. So specifically, I teach Old Testament. So what Old Testament professor in her right mind agrees to preach on Ruth chapter three? <laughs> it's, it's a crazy chapter. Um, you know, I, I will note, I will say actually first that it's a story of risk and intrigue. At its heart, it's full of risk and intrigue with spicy moments full of a little more than just a wee bit of innuendo. I would like to note that Mary Alice asked me to preach on Ruth 3 and not Chad Eggleston, my friend and <laughs> Old Testament colleague over there. I will say, if you have any specific questions about those spicy moments on the threshing floor, I welcome you to ask all questions and direct them toward Chad or even Eric Holliman because he has been ribbing me this week about this sermon. So Eric will answer questions too. Anyway. <laughs> Moving on to the actual sermon. Um, Mary Alice has been leading us in a sermon series on the book of Ruth for the last few weeks. And just as a short recap, uh, in Ruth chapters one and two, the backdrop of this story has been about tragic loss and death of loved ones and really the struggle for just simple survival. Naomi, renaming herself Mara, which means bitter or bitterness, and her daughter-in-law Ruth, who uh, leave Moab, and moved to Bethlehem after the death of Naomi's husband and sons in the hopes of, I think, simply surviving. It's really a story of survival and the hopes of survival. Naomi is a Bethlehemite. Bethlehem, as Mary Alice told us, means house and lechem, bread. So the house of bread, you can't, hopefully you can read into that, that they're hoping for food <laughs> when you hear the name of the town. But Ruth is a Moabite. She's not a Bethlehemite. She's a Moabite. And so she's a foreign woman coming to the hometown of her mother-in-law. Upon returning, Ruth goes out to glean in the fields. And gleaning is not an activity that you do if you're doing well in life. It's an activity that's done in desperate times. And as luck would have it, Ruth gleans in the field of Naomi's relative, Boaz. And this is the Hollywood meet-cute moment that Mary Alice was referring to last week. While Ruth is gleaning, Boaz extends favor on her, allowing her to even have his servants help her as she gleans. Indeed, Boaz's chesed, chesed means loving kindness or generosity, goes beyond the culturally expected norms to provide for Ruth and Naomi a means to survive, but it's really a means to survive for just a few more days. So in our reading for today, the backdrop of that famine and that need for survival, it's not gone. It's still very much present in our chapter. In the crisis, it's not disappeared. Ruth's gleaning is what's gotten them to this point. It's kept them alive, but the future's not secure and the harvest season is coming to an end. So what do you do next? What happens next? Chapter three opens with Naomi and Ruth in their home. And Naomi says to Ruth, daughter, I must seek a home for you so you will be happy. She then outlines a scheme that's pretty complex. 
She says, go get yourself cleaned up. She said, actually, go put on, you know, bathe, put on perfume and put on new clothes. Get yourself, get yourself looking pretty. And go up to the threshing floor where Boaz is. He's my kinsman. He'll be harvesting barley. Now, you want to hide. Make sure to hide. And when he eats and drinks and is merry, and he goes and he lies down somewhere, then you come out under the cover of darkness, and you go lie down at his feet, and he'll tell you what to do. <laughs> All right. So there are many... <laughs> There are many directives here. We'll just go with the active verbal forms that are all present in this story. And, you know, you got to read this and say, what is Naomi thinking at this point? Um, as Kohn Eskenazi and Freimer Kinski say, uh, comment in their Ruth commentary, they say, this is a risky and risque adventure. And this is true. It's a risky and risque adventure. She is sending her daughter-in-law, her only breadwinner, out to a place where a single woman should never go unaccompanied. Now, the nerdy archaeologist in me has to tell you that threshing floors were in public places. You could walk outside of city gates and, say, in the city of Samaria, they were right outside the city gates. Or in the case of Jerusalem, we know that the threshing floor of Aruna is where they built the first and second temples, and that was on a high platform above the city. So they're in public spaces. But it's not a place that you would send a single woman because of kind of the merriment and conviviality, I'll say, that goes on there. It would kind of be like sending a daughter to the red light district. People would only interpret it one way, all right? So why does Naomi do this and why does Ruth listen? Well, we've seen in the entire book of Ruth that it's really about decision-making. Naomi and Ruth are constantly making decisions for the purpose of their survival. But how are these decisions being made? Now, is this a crunch time decision-making type of situation? Is Naomi down to the wire and so she feels like she needs to go all in on Ruth's future and her future? And for those of you who like sports, I grew up in a family that adores sports, so it's always on the television, there's always a game on. Um, Decision-making is what's exciting about sports. It's the crunch time decision-making. It's the feature on SportsCenter, right, on ESPN. It's the last minute or the amazing play that happened in whatever, whatever sport they're, they're covering. I can remember countless games as a child where it felt like, more often than not, my team was the one that lost in the last seconds of the game because I wasn't a Boston fan at the time, so <laughs> yeah, that's at you, Jamie. It's my husband, he grew up in Boston, and now it feels like his teams always win, I know, I know. But anyway, um, but at the time, you know, I, I saw those countless games. I grew up in Indiana, where basketball was and is revered. It's the, it's the state pastime. And so I'll set the stage of a, a memory I have as a child. Two storied basketball teams, and the shot that ended the hopes of one team and brought about the dreams of another. Now, I could be talking about a lot of NCAA tournament games, right? You can all in your head, if you like sport, I know some of you have lost you at sport, but if you like sport, this is something that you can identify with. And for a few of you, you are old enough to remember a game, and you're thinking of Duke and Kentucky. I know who's out there thinking of Duke and Kentucky, Mary Alice, Chad, I'm throwing it back at Chad again. And the 1992 matchup where Christian Leitner with two seconds left on the clock, I think it was something like that, wins the game, and I'm sure, as Mary Alice has told us, her family was in mourning for quite a period of time. 
But I'm from Indiana. We don't care about Duke and Kentucky. We care about the Indiana Hoosiers and the Purdue Boilermakers. Or if you're a girl growing up in Muncie, Indiana, you care about the Ball State Mighty Fighting Cardinals. Right, Ed Davis? Yes. <laughs> and in 1990, Ball State made it to the Sweet 16, where they lost. But before they made it to that, they were in the second round playing Louisville, and they won. It was, just, it was an amazing win with Chandler Thompson, a Muncie, Indiana boy, pulling off the victory for us. Now, again, they did lose in the Sweet 16 to UNLV, but it was by two points, and it was the closest margin that any team had kept UNLV in two years. So... We have that to fall back on. Anyway, a more recent and probably regionally appropriate example would be, say, the Baylor men's football team beating uh, TCU 61 to 58 just a few years back. And they were down, and there was only like 11 minutes left on the, the clock, right? It was an amazing victory. Or how about our ba uh, Baylor University women's uh, basketball team? Um, and that was a, a nail-biter. Would Cox's injury be way too much for the team to be able to handle? Would they be able to pull it off? Would the Lady Bears be able to beat Notre Dame? Well, the answer is, or would Notre Dame win? No, they didn't win. We won. So we pulled that off. But now, in all of these examples I've given, whether it's Baylor, whether it's Ball State, you know, which, whichever team you want, decision-making is always the crucial component to all of this. And while we treat these moments as these split-second decisions, it's really the long game in all of these stories. If you go back to any of these teams and you look at their seasons, the seasons are amazing for all the teams. Um, it's training. It's understanding how your teammates work. It's understanding how you work. And that's what, had the, that's what made the Lady Bears win in the end. This is the same in the book of Ruth. I'm drawing it back. It's the same in the book of Ruth. The long game is how Ruth and Naomi ended up succeeding, even in the face of completely unexpected circumstances. From the start of the book of Ruth, you go to the beginning of the story, they actively are seeking to better their circumstances in life. Naomi loses her husband and sons. She loses, I mean, that's an amazing loss in her life. But Ruth doesn't leave her. Her decision to stay with her mother-in-law has care and consideration in that as well. Uh, her response to Naomi, who asks her three times, Naomi says, you need to go home. There's nothing more that I can do for you. And she says, I'm not going to go home. She says, I'm in it for the long game, basically. When Ruth says, it, Ruth responds to Naomi, don't press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. And may the Lord do thus and so, if anything but death parts me from you. That, that reveals, Ruth's statement reveals an understanding that relationships are about the long haul. She's acting in the interests of both herself and Naomi. It's till death do us part. I was speaking to my colleague and friend, Mandy McMichael, about this situation that leads to the threshing floor moment in Ruth 3. When you teach in a department of religion, these are the conversations you have. Um, and Mandy points, pointed out to me that if the story's about decision-making, it's also about established patterns of trust. Why does Ruth go with Naomi to Bethlehem? Well, we don't fully know, but it's clear that Naomi has gained Ruth's long and abiding trust. Why does Ruth follow Naomi's advice and go to the threshing floor to petition Boaz? 
Again, we don't know. It's likely yet another indication of the trust and the bond that's between the two of them. Again, another question, why does Naomi send Ruth to the threshing floor to begin with? Well, again, we don't know. But we can maybe extrapolate that Naomi is making the suggestion in the first place because she's seen how Boaz has proved himself in the past. Naomi's suggestion and Ruth's decision to act are based on established patterns of behavior and trusting that the person will continue to act in a similar way. As my psychologist father and sister remind me over, have reminded me over the years, uh, the best predictor of any future behavior is past behavior. This is good marital advice, by the way, and good relationship advice in general. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Naomi is using Boaz's past behavior as a basis for future behavior. And I truly believe that had Boaz acted improperly in Ruth chapter 2, that Naomi would have never sent uh, Ruth to the, to the threshing floor in Ruth chapter 3. And part of it growing and expanding in our faith is to actively put ourselves into situations where we seek advice from righteous people. Then we act. And indeed, Ruth does act. She follows Naomi's instructions, but with a bit of improvisation. When Boaz wakes from his sleep and finds a woman at his feet, Ruth does not wait for Boaz to tell her what to do. Rather, she says, spread your robe over your handmaiden, for you are a redeeming kinsman. And here, Ruth is actually reminding Boaz of what he is to do. By calling him a goel, calling him a redeemer, she's reminding him of his obligations to care for her. And what does Boaz do? Well, he promises to act on her behalf. Ruth reminds, her, Ruth reminds Boaz of who she is. She sticks to the game plan, but does go off script a bit. Just like if we're pouring into our faith and we go off script and things are not what we anticipate, we can still act. We can make wise decisions, hopefully. And in turn, when Boaz is placed into a position of power, he sees the goodness in Ruth rather than condemning her for her questionable act of seeking him out in the middle of the night. He just sees the good in the act. I think that's a wonderful part of the story. So indeed, Ruth is really a story about seeing God work in unexpected ways. Mary Alice drew our attention to this Two weeks ago, it's seeing God even in terrible situations and not getting stuck on where is God, where is God, but saying, ah, there is God. It might be a small point, but seeing God even in those moments. Ruth is a story about heartbreaking loss and almost near starvation, but it turns into a blessing even after terrible loss. And that's one of the story, reasons I think the story is so very relatable. But making decisions is hard, right? It's really hard to make decisions. Um, there's always an element of risk to any decision we make. And wise decision-making isn't about eliminating all risks. And the development of our faith is not just about trusting God and imagining God will make all decisions for us without any risk. It's about seeking wise counsel from God and those around us which helps us grow in our own decision-making. It's about being in community with those who help us make wise decisions. 
You know, occasionally a student will come to talk to me about their love lives. This is really always one of my more fearful moments when this happens. And, and on more than one occasion, one of them will say something along the lines of, I know God has someone out there for me, and I just need to wait for God to present that person to me. <laughs> Naomi says, no, that's not how this goes. <laughs> that's not the model we see in the book of Ruth. And Jamie and I are celebrating our 20th, and you can ask me later, but that, we wouldn't be married if I didn't pull a Ruth here, except not the threshing floor thing, not the threshing floor. <laughs> there was no cloaks. Anyway. <laughs> it's not a story in which the main characters are acting in a passive manner. It's not a story when Ruth comes back home and says, Boaz acted kindly to me, mother-in-law, and Ruth doesn't say to her, well, that's great. Why don't you go get yourself pretty? We'll bake something, and we'll wait for him to come to us. I don't know why I did it in a southern accent, but anyway. <laughs> it's a story about decision-making on the part of Ruth and Naomi, and then Boaz responding to the situation in which she's been placed. It's a story about actively changing your situation. It's a story about coming alongside someone in need and helping them get back to their former selves. And in the case of our story, coming alongside really unexpected people, because who could imagine your main characters being a mother-in-law and a, a daughter-in-law? And who could imagine a story in which the hero roots for one of the most hated group of people for the Israelites, the Moabites? And if you don't know the deep-seated hatred that the Israelites felt for the Moabites, read chapter 19 of Genesis and don't get stuck on Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt to get to the end of the chapter. But this is really hard, right? What I'm saying is hard. Sometimes all we can be like is Naomi in chapter 1. We meet her just when she's getting by. And sometimes I feel like it's, it's the Ruth coming alongside you and taking care of you, moving you back to where you are, that makes you see something more. By getting Naomi to where she was before all these losses and tragedies, she can remember what it means to be more than just surviving, but really hope to thrive and see a future. To see a long future, even if the future happens to be in Ruth, her daughter-in-law. Naomi through Ruth is actively changing their situation, and, and the God of Naomi, to whom Ruth pledges herself in chapter 1, has brought about redemption in life through their faithfulness to one another. But what does this look like for us? Who in your life needs help returning to their former selves? Is it you? Who might come alongside you or who may you come alongside to actively change your situation? What unlikely place could God be calling you to go? Because it might not be a threshing floor, but when we are some, sent by somebody that we trust, I hope we have Ruth's response and we know that they might have our best interests at heart. And then we need to respond. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for stories of fearlessness. We pray for those who need to make changes, that we come alongside them as a family to do so. We pray for wise decision-making for all of us. 
And it's in the name of Jesus, our, our Lord and Savior, that we pray. Amen. If you're in need of someone to come alongside you in prayer, please see one of our ministers in the back, or back of the sanctuary. And if you'd like to talk about what it means to follow Jesus or about how to join our community of faith here at Calvary, we would welcome you to visit with, we welcome you to visit with the ministers in the back of the sanctuary. Oh. Uh -huh.
When Naomi and Ruth returned from the land of Moab, weary from their travels and unsure of the future, Ruth told Naomi, perhaps I can go out into the field of some kind man to glean the free grain behind his reapers. Naomi, though probably wary of the safety of her daughter-in-law, obliged. While gleaning, she was seen by Boaz, who ensured that she would not be hungry. Astonished at his generosity, Ruth exclaimed, how can you be so kind to me? You must know I am only a foreigner. Boaz assured Ruth that her worth and her blessedness in the eyes of God were not dependent on any national identity. In the generosity of Boaz, we can see the character of Christ. Generosity that sees the unseen, that dignifies the lowly, and that miraculously feeds the hungry with leftovers to spare. Christ declared, I am the true vine. As the vine, Christ provides life and livelihood to us all, and there is plenty for all to draw near to him. At his table, we find a gleaning field where all are fed and no one is turned away. May the church show this character to the world. So today we come to the table to remember again how the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so now let us come to the table. Come to the table, not because you must, but because you may. Not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come not because of any goodness of your own gives you a right to come, but because you need mercy. Come because you love the Lord a little and would like to love him more. Come because he loved you and gave himself for you. Come and meet the risen Christ, for we are his body.
If you are a newcomer to Calvary, we are really glad you're here. Summer is often a time when some of us are in and out of town, but I'm mindful that we've had quite a few new people over the summer. And so uh, before you slip out today, we hope you'll give us a chance to greet you and to get to know you a little better. I want to thank Sherry DeHay for leading us in worship today. The Bradley family made it home from Kenya late last night. Uh, They are exhausted and recovering, um, but grateful that Brenda was really able to be present and to enjoy that trip and so they're so grateful for that time together and then she starts another chemo tomorrow morning. Um, Friday, John Hunt and his family pulled into Waco, and I just want to say thank you so much to the Calvary family for giving them such a warm greeting. Whether you were there to unload the truck in the 99-degree heat, unpack, um, or whether you're taking a meal this week, um, your hospitality and kindness has truly meant so much to them, particularly as they are leaving a place that they have loved so much over these past several years, too. We will officially welcome John as our associate pastor next Sunday, and then we'll welcome the whole family at our cookout at Cameron Park next Sunday night. We have the Redwood Shelter reserved, and are really looking forward to that time together. Um, It's a great chance for us to connect before the semester begins, but it's also a great chance to invite new people uh, to come check out the Calvary family. And I know several people for whom this was kind of their first look into who we are and what we're all about. And so be thinking about who you might invite to join us at that cookout next week. And try to RSVP by Thursday. It's free, but we want to make sure we have enough food for everybody. As you're doing your back-to-school shopping, we hope that you will consider picking up some school supplies or even a backpack full of school supplies for West Avenue. We'll be collecting those for the next two weeks. And then as you leave today, we will also be receiving the Samaritans Fund. This is a fund that goes toward emergent needs in our congregation, in our community, and it is used often and well. So thank you for giving generously to that. Well, I'm going to ask Emmett and Kristen Drumgoole if they would come join me up front. Um, It is always exciting when we welcome new people to Calvary, um, often in the fall, but it is always sad when we have to say goodbye to people that we love so dearly. Um, Even as we celebrate that they are following God's calling on their lives to new places, and that's what Emmett and Kristen are doing. Emmett and Kristen actually met here at Calvary several years ago, which is pretty special. Um, They have invested themselves so deeply in the family of God in this place, not only within our young adults ministry, but really through a depth of relationships across the generations. Kristen has served as a deacon. She's been active in our Samaritans Fund team and the music and worship ensemble. Emmett has served in missions as a small group leader and with our college and young adults. They are preparing to move to Liberty, Missouri, where Emmett will be a pastoral resident at the Second Baptist Church of Little Rock. But he's actually going to serve with another Calvarian. Jason Edwards is now their pastor. I know many of you know him well from his time at Calvary. And then Kristen will be serving as a social worker in the local school. I just want you all to know that you have left such an imprint on this place. And I want to thank you for the ways you have so faithfully and fully given of your love and your care and your kinship and your hopes. And so as I offer this benediction today, I want us to pray these words specifically over the two of you. Um, We also invite you to come this afternoon um, to Emmett's ordination, as that will be a sacred time of praying over you as well. 
But please stand and join me in this benediction as we pray these words together. Friends, may the God who calls you from this place journey with you as you go. May God delight in you with joy, bringing unimagined graces. Walk with you in darkness, shining light along your way. May God be close to you in pain, giving strength for every moment, and comfort you in fear, granting courage to be brave. May God's love surround you. May Christ's mercy astound you, and may the Spirit abound within you so that you live in the fullness of the God who is with you always. Amen. with you all the Christ.